Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is Professor Dee Smythe, who is a Professor of Public Law and Deputy Dean for Research in the Law Faculty at the University of Cape Town. From 2006 to 2012, she was Director of the Law, Race and Gender Unit. From 2013 to 2015, the Founding Director of the Centre for Law and Society. Prior to rejoining the Law Faculty in 2009, she was Principal Researcher at the Gender, Health and Justice Research Unit at the University of Cape Town's Faculty of Health Sciences. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me onto your show. Reflecting on your career, in 2004, you were a Fulbright Fellow at Stanford Law School, where you received your master's and doctoral degrees. In 2011, the Law, Race and Gender Research Unit's Rural Women's Action Research Project received the UCT Social Responsiveness Award. You have also convened the African Network of Constitutional Lawyers Focus Group on Women, Equality and Constitutionalism and served for several years as Deputy Chairperson of the Board of Rape Crisis. Looking at these points that I've mentioned, responsible justice for women seems to be a significant theme throughout your career. What have been some of the key motivations to pursue this direction? Well, you know, interestingly, I've, I've never seen myself as a women's rights activist. Um, but I had a keen sense from, uh, from quite young that we live in an unjust world uh, and that it was a world where privilege and authority were often not earned. And that understanding of the world was always, at a very basic level, intersectional. Well, what I was seeing, you know, around me and my experiences of kind of privilege imposed on me were about ethnicity and about class and I was seeing what was happening around race, but it was always gendered. So I think from, you know, from, from early on understanding this raw embodied uh, experience of gender was very, very central for me. And so then once you understand how pernicious privilege is, you're always going to have authority issues, for one thing, and you're always going to question received knowledge. Um, and often what is presented to you as academic knowledge, uh, knowledge about the world, this objective knowledge, feels very masculine. It doesn't feel like something that relates back to, you know, one's own experience of being, uh, of being a woman um, and of um, being a woman in a, a kind of a social um, space. So, you know, I, 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 th I think as, as I came into kind of university spaces, people recognized that about me and people started talking about me as a feminist, uh, which was a, a label that I was very happy to um, kind of take on, but, and as a woman's rights activist. But it's not something that I had, um, had kind of seen myself as. So it's almost as though the actions that you've, undertaken just um, purely in terms of, of observing um, through, as you mentioned, privilege and authority not being earned, that the knowledge that we are consuming is masculine-based. And by having this conscious awareness of it yourself, it sort of 
diffused into the rest of your surroundings and environment? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you see if you see knowledge as being subjective, and and if you see yourself always as being positioned, and the knowledge that you produce as being positioned by who you are, what your experiences are, uh, where you come from, and that has been, I think, the you know my big learning, um, and something that I that I, I continue to to struggle with. On the one hand, the kind of universalism of, of women's experiences, um, their vulnerability to particular forms of violence, for example, uh, the ways in which they're defined and shaped by law. Um, and on the other hand, the, 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 the differences um, that are inherent in our, our, our experiences of femininity, of gender, and so on. Looking at that aspect of vulnerability to violence. I recently looked at the South African Police Service's 2017 crime stats, which showed that approximately 50,000 sexual assault cases had been reported. There's an estimation that 90% of those are committed against women, that 80% of those crimes are rape, which indicates that there's 109 reported rapes per day. Figures are um, underreported, but still, these are alarming. And then furthermore, according to the National Prosecuting Authority, there is an estimated 8% conviction rate on rape. So not only are statistics incredibly alarming, but year on year, this trend doesn't seem to change much. What's your perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, you know we have amongst the highest rates of rape in the world, the highest reported rates of rape in the world. So so those are staggeringly high rates, and, and they seem to just be really stuck there. The majority of reported cases are not referred to a national prosecuting authority, so they just kind of fizzle away at the investigation stage already. Um, and then pretty much the majority of cases that are referred to the prosecutors are not um, prosecuted. So when you're looking at that 8% um, conviction rate, that's somewhere between probably 50 and 70% of the cases that were actually prosecuted. Um, and sometimes the, the prosecution authority will actually say, well, we have a conviction rate of, you know, something that sounds very good, about 50%, say. Um, but that's not of the reported cases. That's of the cases that they've decided they've got a good shot at, um, at winning. And so you end up with a situation where there is really very little deterrence as far as uh, the criminal justice system goes. You know, we can keep ratcheting up the, um, the sentences um, and impose all of these minimum sentences for rape, but if we're not actually bringing people to trial um, and we're not getting the convictions, well, you know, then, then, then those sentences are just sitting there on paper. So looking at your experiences, what would you say are the key issues? Is it a fact that people are withdrawing cases? Are cases just not going through the, the value chain um, to get through to the prosecution level? So I, um, I looked at some of this for the book that I published uh, a couple of years ago, Rape Unresolved. Um, and what I was kind of interested in there was, on the one hand, when you speak to women's rights activists um, about why we have such high attrition rates. And women's rights activists would say, well, the police culture is one of machismo, it's misogynist, 
Uh, there's a kind of built-in skepticism around particularly female victims, and their approach is completely imbued with, with rapeness. You know, the, the kind of, you asking for it, what was she wearing, uh, was it a sex worker, what, was she drinking, you know, all of those kinds of things. When you talk to the police, the police tell you, well, first of all, women lie. And second of all, even when they don't lie, they withdraw cases in kind of high numbers for various reasons, and it is therefore a complete waste of time. Um, and so, in fact, we, we had a number of years ago uh, interviewed police at one police station who said that they had a seven-day rule, and that was that if a woman came and reported that she'd been raped, they said, come back in seven days, and if she did, then they kind of would maybe continue with the case, and if she didn't, well, then she obviously wasn't serious about it. Uh, and this is a, a kind of a recurring theme with, with criminal justice people is, you know, the victims aren't serious enough about the case. So I was interested in testing out basically these two quite opposing views about why we were losing so many cases in the um, rape cases in the system. And so I looked at I looked at cases that were unfounded, and there were very very few of them. So if women were lying, they certainly weren't being reported in the official statistics as such. But there were a large number of cases that were withdrawn by the complainant. So what the police will tell you is, um, you know, some of those are withdrawn for family reasons. Um, maybe the family comes to some kind of an arrangement, a settlement, um, and, and, and the case is withdrawn. Or they're drawn, withdrawn because they, especially in the Western Cape, it's about gangs and violence. Um, but more often than not, it's because the couple were in a relationship. That kind of intuitively makes sense. We all know that there are problems with acquaintance uh, rapes. They're hard to prosecute. Uh, complainants are reluctant to kind of go forward with the cases. Um, obviously, if people are intimidated in a kind of a gang setting or there's a lot of violence, this could be an issue. You know, this all, this all kind of makes sense. And too, when you talk about things also from a poverty point of view, if there is a, a codependency in a relationship that you are quite possibly not going to be letting your source of income be put away. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and you see this coming through in a number of the um, cases that I've looked at across a variety of, of, of settings. But what's interesting, though, is you don't see it as often as, um, as you're told that it's happening. What happens with the police is... If they don't um, properly investigate a case, if a case is undetected, it counts against them. But if you as a complainant withdraw a case, then it's counted as a successful investigation. And so what you see actually is a number of cases where it's not entirely clear that, first of all, that it's the complainant withdrawing the case, but secondly, that the complainant actually necessarily wants to withdraw the case. So you might find a withdrawal statement that says, um, I don't want to proceed with this case because I can't tell the police who is the man who raped me. Um, and that would be counted as a case that's withdrawn by the complainant. So yes, we see these boyfriend cases, we see the cases of, of, of violence and intimidation, not that many of them, because I think most of those are not reported in the first place. We see some instances where families are, are involved and settlements are reached. But we also see a very substantial number of cases where complainants have effectively been asked to investigate their own cases, um, you know, to go and find the person, to, um, to find the name of the person who raped them, um, and, and to bring that to the police. And if you don't do that, 
Well, then you weren't really serious about it. I'm, I'm sitting here a little bit lost for words that you're expected after being a victim to go out and do the police work. Yeah. No, there, there are, there are uh, numerous cases like that. Um, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Anthony Altbecker in his book writes about these pointing out notes. So the police would give you what is called a pointing out note. And in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act, what that does is it means that you can go to any police person and say, I was a victim of a crime and I've been asked to point out this person um, and that is the person across the road, please can you arrest them? You know, because obviously you can't do that ordinarily, you can't just walk up to a cop and say, please arrest that person across the road. So it's, you know, it's supposed to help in, in that situation. But in fact, as Altbecker points out, for the most part that's where the case ends. Um, you're given this pointing out note, oh yeah, if you find the person, come and tell us and we'll, uh, and, and we'll arrest them. And so the interesting thing about your, um, uh, your 8% is that you would expect to see more stranger rates there. The way in which it, it, the, the story is told, particularly in international literature, is the cases that don't make it to trial are the ones that were committed against uh, women of questionable uh, virtue uh, who are known to the perpetrator, probably in her home or his home, and, and where, you know, she's kind of engaged in risky behavior. So the, the, the ones that should be prosecuted, the ones that should be successful, are virtuous, um, uh, in a public space, using a weapon, um, and, you know, no kind of um, uh, precipitating behavior. And that's not what you see in a South African situation. So what you see is that the, the most serious, very violent stranger rates are not being prosecuted. Because those are the ones that require investigation. Well, thank you for sharing your insights on some of the causes and, and the reasons behind the, the low attrition rates. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy. Today, we're talking to Professor Dee Smythe, who is a Professor of Public Law and Deputy Dean for Research in the Law Faculty at the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Our program, Womanity, Woman in Unity, is about gender equality, which is becoming more and more a global focus. And part of um, the, the, the attributes within this is about female leadership and being important for both the future of women in Africa as well as across the world. In your role as a professor of public law and also deputy dean for research in the law faculty at UCT, do you think that attaining a 50-50% representation across the board is achievable? I think I worry about 50-50 as a concept. There are steps that need to be taken in order to ensure genuine diversity of representation in leadership. So I worry that when we talk about 50-50, we're, we're falling into a gender binary trap um, and, and that there are people who are excluded from that, from that kind of you know, idea that they should be 50% men and 50% um, women. 
I also know that very often with 50-50, a good number of the 50 women who make it in are there because they're acceptable to the 50 men. And so although I think that it, that it is useful to, it's a, it's, a, it's a useful organizing tool, it's useful to think and to talk about it, it's useful to aim for much more representation for women, and as, you know, notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, says, well, why can't the entire U.S. Supreme Court be made up of women? It was perfectly acceptable for all those years for it to be made up of men. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I don't think that 50-50 is where we should stop either, but I don't think it is, that it's an end in itself. And um, I think we constantly need to be questioning who the women are that are ascending, what their politics is, what they're doing to improve the lives of, of, of women um, and to bring other women along with them. I think that's a very interesting perspective. Looking forwards to to the head and, and the future of, of development, what do you think we need to do to benefit women in the future? Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think to move women along in leadership positions, one of the key things for me, and this comes back to the issue of privilege, is about building networks. Um, you know, it's about genuine access to mentoring, genuine access to support. And actually, part of networking, I've come to realize, is about actually letting other women in on the secrets that we've kind of learned along the way. <laughs> I think how privilege operates is that there are some things that people just know, right? Uh, and they just know it because they grew up with it, and uh, you know, so maybe in an academic setting, they know it because their daddies were were professors, and or in the law school setting because they come from a, a long line of lawyers. There's just things that they know, and all of that is hard for people who don't come from that environment. Um, you know, most in most places, uh, in my experience, there is so much knowledge that is taken for granted. And for me, therein lies a lot of the privilege. Um, and so I think um, providing opportunities for, for sharing that knowledge, the kinds of opportunities that mean that women don't have to go through the same kinds of learning curves um, that the women who preceded them have, I think that's kind of key to mentoring. Do you think that part of the solution is establishing more formalized mentorship structures so that this sort of tacit information is spread across uh, in, into more networks? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's really essential. Um, and I think it's the one thing that we as senior women can be doing is to involve ourselves in those kinds of projects. I do this with a number of young academics across the continent, just working on access to peer review, um, and just basic advice about how to navigate um, the kind of academic setting. Um, because it's not only within your own institution. You know, academia, as you know, is, um, is international. Um, and so knowing how to position yourself, I think, is, is often quite challenging. The positive things within the, the academic space and its, its global reach is that when you are producing articles that it is peer-reviewed and it's done under anonymity so people don't know the gender 
No, no, they don't. The, I mean, I think uh, there is there's something else that um, that is operating. It's, it's been something that's been very kind of taxing even for the last few years. Is about the representation of Africans generally in the, the international journals in my field. So, you know, if you look at, at kind of one of the, or the absolutely leading journal in my field, of just over 1,200 articles that were published from 1966 to last year, only 40 of them dealt with Africa at all. Um, and only eight of those were written by scholars in Africa. So, you know, one of the things that I think is happening, and, and, and I've been working with um, both at UCT um, and and then also with um, Ambina Manji, who's at Cardiff, um, on writing workshops. And one of the things that happen- is happening is that is that kind of women in particular self-select art. Right? They just they they just don't put their work forward in the first place. Um, and so part of what I'm trying to do is to ensure that. Um, there's a network of mentors who can support moving from having a really promising paper, and, and I see so many just really excellent papers coming out of, um, out of particularly scholarship on women and law in Africa, um, and from moving it from there to to actually being ready for peer review. I think that's a wonderful initiative, uh, both on, on the upliftment point of view, on developing the talent, on helping them partner up with mentors in their respective fields and then collectively as you take that knowledge it also positions African scholars within the world space. Well it does but it also tells a different story about Africa. So the story that's told about Africa in the law and society um, journals generally is a story of kind of pestilence, uh, disease and um, sex. So it's 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 you know, and war. It's about violence. It's about and the stories, the, the family law kind of um, articles are about um, things like leveret marriages and uh, polygyny. Um, so the, the kind of the ordinariness of African life is not reflected. Um, and I think, you know, the more that we tell the ordinary stories of our life and the stories of our ordinary encounters with law, um, you know, the, the more we take responsibility for how Africa is positioned in, in the world of scholarship. But if you said that only eight Africans contributed to the journal since 1966, it means that Africans aren't telling their own story. It means stories no. being told by by non-Africans. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know, some some of those, um, and and there are also there are also long gaps. Right? There there are long periods of time, seven eight years, in which there are no um, articles on Africa at all. Africa just doesn't exist in the scholarship. Um, but but quite a lot of the work that um, is being done, and I think, this sort of feeds the um, exoticization. Um, is Africa as a PhD site, right? So people coming to Africa to write about uh, trafficking, uh, organ trade, uh, witchcraft, you know, um, and uh, and then going back to their northern universities and writing up their dissertations and then turning that into an article. So there does seem to be a bit of a sensationalist element to it as well. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to Professor Dee Smythe, who is a Professor of Public Law and Deputy Dean for Research in the Law Faculty at the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof. Smythe, we're coming towards the, the latter part of the show, and in this section I tend to ask my guests who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of expertise about the factors of success that they consider have, have contributed to their development. Some people speak about perseverance, others talk about hard work, in your opinion, what have been some of the factors that, that you consider uh, to have contributed to your success? Um, I, I think my, I think a genuine quest to understand the world around me. And that results in a few things. So the one is, um, you know, it kind of ties back into what I was saying um, earlier. So, you know, always thinking that there has to there, there has to be more there has to be more to the story there has to be more to understand a kind of an openness um, to um, to a variety of views and to kind of you know um, uh, learning I think um, but also I think that the thing that has ultimately driven my success has been the delight that I take in the brilliance of others um, that I uh, strongly believe that you, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Um, and I have been very successful at surrounding myself with, um, I'm very lucky, I suppose, in surrounding myself with very brilliant people. And those brilliant people inevitably are challenging um, and, uh, and force you to think and to think but also loving and patient. Can you tell us who've been some of the strong women in your life? That's a really interesting question. Um, I have thought a lot in the last year uh, for various reasons about groupthink uh, and how it is that people come to be so certain that they're right about things. And I realized that one of the reasons that well, one of the things that protected me, I think, from falling into that trap, um, perhaps not always, but hopefully most of the time, um, was was the prevalence of strong women in my life, um, and exactly this—the fact that they um, that they were patient and loving, but also so hard on me, um, and you know, really kind of questioned me and forced me to justify myself and articulate my uh, my positions and you know so and, and those are not those are not uh, people who are in positions of high you know standing or um, or whatever there are people who who work with me um, who people who I was at Stanford with uh, so my colleague Diane Justice at, at UCT um, uh, Paula Bagalo, who's an Argentinian scholar, um, who convinced me that teaching uh, university students is the highest form of activism. <laughs> um, 
nobody for Gaza, who you know weren't able to get away with much. Um, yeah, and and so a, 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 a circle of um, a circle of support, um, but a circle that is that is very challenging. That's exactly what I was going to say. It, it seems to be both support, but also challenging, uh, challenging you as as an individual to not fall into the trap of groupthink, to really understand why you believe in your ideologies or, or why you follow a, a particular philosophy. It's an immense um, privilege, and that's one we we all need to think about. I think, but the the the, the, the fact that somebody thinks that you're worth investing in, worth investing their time, their patience, their energy. Um, to me, is is quite amazing, um, and 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 something that I think one has to work to deserve and reciprocate. Yeah, that goes to also a, a bit of a bit of privilege, but but also honouring um, that they've invested that time into you as an individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you share with us some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? Uh, what influenced you? Well, I um, I grew up in a very small town in South Africa, um, in and I went to a school which was five to one Afrikaans to English. The only English speaking teacher that I had uh, was my English teacher. Um, so, although I was notionally taught in um, in in English, um, I was in fact always taught by Afrikaans uh, teachers with some some. Uh, some of them better than than, than others, um, but it was a it was a space in which um, English children were kind of quote unquote considered to be the scum of the earth, um, and referred to as the damned English, the donor thing also. Um, so when I talk about kind of always having a sense of um, position as the as the other of privilege operating, some of it comes from um, from um, that space, um, and so it was also a space in which some of these um, banal nationalisms were always apparent. You know, you had to sing the national anthem in the morning, and the and the flag song, and because uh, there was a really very um, uh, kind of epitome of Christian nationalist education, and um, and I, you know, I as I said before, I sort of a, a good sense that <laughs> there was something very very wrong with all of this. So when I went off to university, I went to this, um, and that was a place that really um, concretized uh, things for me. It it, um, it helped me to kind of understand this injustice, this indignity that I'd been feeling in, in, in a kind of more intellectual um, terms. Um, but it was also a very, very unsettling um, experience. Um, just coming out of a small town, um, just been so confronted with what was happening in the late 80s um, in South Africa. Um, and so I became involved with um, uh, student um, activism. And I was very briefly arrested, really only long enough for um, for my parents to be informed and for my father to say, there's no way that I'm sending you back to that place. Um, and so I, I actually dropped out of university, um, out of it, in, um, in the late 80s and did a lot of other um, activist work, um, and including virtual education in the run-up to the um, 1994 election. 
And then one in you know, freedom in South Africa, for me the next thing was to travel in Africa. So my partner and I kind of sold up everything and for the next, this was 1994, for the next uh, more than a year and a half we just traveled north using public transport um, and eventually ended up in Cairo and um, kind of back to South Africa where I went back to, um, to UCT. Um, and so, you know, that experience of, of growing up in a space which is very much about knowing your place and then being exposed to the world of act- activism at, at, um, at first and then being able to experience uh, one facet of a small sliver um, of, of Africa as a, um, you know, as a young woman has all been very formative for me. It seems as though you've lived the full spectrum from being in a very conformist environment, being the minority, being the, the damned English, in inverted commas, and then democracy coming through for South Africa, the freedom, and then having the opportunity to explore the continent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think it, it coming back to gender issues in particular, um, Sitting on a bus from Lusaka to Lilongwe um, for however many hours that took in 1994, or being in Eritrea just after the border was opened with Ethiopia, and the experience of being with women, you know, was a very strong influence on me. Um, so that I've always felt like, although absolutely one cannot and should not speak for all women. Um, but I know from my own experience that there are there are those moments of commonality. And on that note, as we close the show, could you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to young women and girls in the continent who are listening to us today? I think it would be that in my in my work on the continent, um, in my work with young African scholars, the talent that I have seen is incredible. And partly it's because we come from these interesting, weird, crazy backgrounds uh, very often. But there is such great work coming out of Africa. The world is yours right now. There is, you know, I talk about the journals that are not reflecting African scholarship. They're desperate for African scholars, you know, Everybody understands, I think, that that diversity, quote-unquote, is, is an important um, value that they should be aspiring to, whether that's the universities, you know, around the world, uh, whether that's these journals, um, and, and to ride that wave um, and to, to take advantage of the opportunity to kind of be out there in the world and um, to share your perspectives with the world. I think that's a wonderful point to close on. The world is yours. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Dee Smythe, who is a professor of public law and deputy dean for research in the law faculty at the University of Cape Town.